Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. I'm Chris Saha. I'm a professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and co-director of the Global Observatory. Uh, really pleased to have all of you here to join us on this, I think, really exciting discussion um, uh, building on the theme of cosmopolitan ethics and um, specifically getting perspectives from outside of the science um, on what we mean by cosmopolitan ethics, how could we um, achieve that uh, that goal, and um, what implications would that have for this type of emerging uh, research in, in the life sciences. So uh, the format today will be, uh, again, like the previous panel, about five to ten minutes of short remarks from each of our distinguished panelists, followed by a discussion with, um, uh, with you, the audience. So first, we have uh, Professor Rosemary Garland-Thompson from Emory University. She is a humanist a uh, disability justice and culture thought leader, bioethicist, educator, human, and, and broad scholar in critical disability studies. Um, and secondly, we have uh, Professor Ruben Brandt, uh, who's a philosopher here at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, her, his research focuses on the ethical and legal questions pertaining to assisted reproduction, uh, reproductive ethics, and a focus on acquisition and distribution of rights and responsibility in complex reproductive arrangements. And lastly, but not least, we have Professor J. Ben Hurlbut from the Arizona State University. He is a um, STS scholar and ha has written several books, uh, including Experiments in Democracy, Human Embryo Research, and the Politics of Bioethics. And we will start off first with uh, Professor Garland Thompson. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and engage in these really interesting discussions. Um, Chris had, uh, in planning our session here, had uh, sent some questions around, and I wanted to respond to one element of uh, his question, and that is, how can we develop uh, cosmopolitan ethics? Um, and in relation to how we develop cosmopolitan ethics, uh, his question was, what perspectives might be silenced in the public conversations about cosmopolitan ethics, and what accounts might be dominant and universalizing. And that's what I wanted to respond to somewhat here today. So I want to make several points. First of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about what cosmopolitan ethics might be. Generally, it's understood that cosmopolitan ethics is based on the idea that all human beings have equal moral status across societies and, I would assume, across time. So this idea of equal moral status um, is a very important one and a rather modern one. And the ensuring of equal moral status through public conversations 
regulations, uh, laws, covenants, practices, uh, is what I would like to talk a little bit about today, what kinds of public conversations we have that will help us uh, as a community of human beings assure that all people are recognized as having equal moral status. And I'm particularly interested in how we implement equality in practices and policies in relation to people with disabilities. So I work in disability studies. I identify as a person with a disability, someone with a genetic condition. Uh, so I come from um, uh, a certain amount of patient expertise or uh, within the community here. Uh, so I'm a bioethicist as well as a patient, which is an interesting place to be. Um, and that's where my perspective comes. Uh, people with disabilities, I think, have had uh, a difficult time, and it has been difficult um, in modern societies to recognize and to implement full equality for people with disabilities, and that's one of the things I would like to focus on. Um, there are many public conversations uh, that exist uh, that support inequality or support what might be called differential equality for people with disabilities. Uh, sometimes we call that the history of eugenics, the idea that some people have a higher moral status based on uh, human differences that we sometimes think of as illness or disability or hereditary inferiority. And, of course, uh, that has a long, deep history. Some examples of that in a uh, post-Holocaust um, and post-World War II um, world might be uh, some of the utilitarian philosophers, uh, such as the philosopher Peter Singer, who has asked questions about whether parents should uh, be able to morally and legally um, euthanize their disabled newborns if they don't want to have those disabled newborns. This is a bit of a provocation, but nonetheless, it's a question that endures. Uh, Julian Savalescu, the utilitarian philosopher, has proposed something he calls procreative beneficence, and by that he means that parents should have the moral obligation to use any particular or any kind of um, genetic selection treatment in order to produce children who have what he calls the best chance to have the best life. We can talk a little bit more about these uh, philosophical positions, but these are just examples of uh, the kinds of uh, conversations that suggest that there is not moral or political equality uh, between people who have disabilities and people who understood themselves and are understood as being... Um, people who are non-disabled or fully um, normal. Um, also, of course, there is a great deal of um, commercial genetic technology development, including testing, uh, that would identify a, a wide range of conditions 
uh, prenatally that uh, might be examined for evaluation and um, decisions might be made uh, by um, prospective families about what uh, kinds of people they want to bring into the world. So these are very controversial questions that, of course, have been brought up again um, recently in public conversations with the um, Dobbs decision uh, that came down from the Supreme Court, which uh, restricts, of course, uh, abortion, and with that, of course, the logics and practice of selective testing and termination. Um, and I'm, I don't think it's very profitable for us to discuss that particularly, but what I do want to talk about is um, the kinds of attitudes and the kinds of conversations in the public that shape our understanding of uh, the kinds of lives that people with disabilities actually uh, lead. So there is also um, a very robust, starting in the mid-20th century, uh, public conversation that comes from civil and human rights movements and that counters the kind of utilitarian thought and philosophy that I mentioned uh, that we see, that we think of often as uh, a kind of eugenic understanding of human variation. Um, and these civil and human rights movements have given us um, a whole apparatus of treaties and covenants and laws ranging in the United States, say, from the Americans with Disabilities Act internationally to the United Nation Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, um, and, of course, the entire human and civil rights set of treaties that the United Nation United Nations has brought forward starting in 1948 with the UN Convention on um, Human Rights. And the implementation of these various treaties and these various um, laws um, has dramatically increased the uh, opportunities for people with disabilities and the implementation of equality for people with disabilities by restructuring um, all sorts of uh, arrangements in the built environment um, and all sorts of desegregation practices. So this human and civil rights initiative and public conversation has countered the utilitarian uh, more or less eugenic uh, set of attitudes and practices and public conversations that I mentioned earlier. Now, I'm giving you a rather oversimplified narrative here because of the time limit. Um, what I would like to end with presenting is the work in healthcare ethics that has been put forward by a number of scholars and um, people who work in healthcare, uh, and that is the idea of developing training and curriculum for healthcare workers in disability cultural 
competence. And this has been put forward by a number of people, but my colleague at Harvard, who is the uh, physician and um, person with multiple sclerosis, Lisa Isioni, has published two studies in healthcare affairs. And these two recent studies, just within the last couple of years, have suggested um, that doctors uh, are uncomfortable with having patients with disabilities in part because they really don't know how to approach and treat people with disabilities. And they are then reluctant um, to often have patients who are people with disabilities. That's what the first study revealed. The second study also suggested that doctors in general don't know very much about um, human and civil rights legislation uh, in terms of people with disabilities. They also don't know very much about um, the legal rights of people with disabilities or how to people with disabilities can request accommodations. And again, this creates a certain discomfort uh, amongst physicians. And so in response to these two rather limited studies, uh, Lisa and many others of us have proposed that curriculum development in uh, showing different, that would draw from the arts and culture to put forward stories about people with disabilities who actually have very high quality of life and who actually um, have been able to flourish with disabilities, with disabilities that are generally understood as the kinds of conditions that create suffering and disadvantage and reduce quality of life. And so one of the things that we are trying to think through is how we can develop this curriculum, how training can be brought forward for healthcare workers that might um, help them better understand that living with disabilities and flourishing uh, can be achieved in life and that having a disability itself or an illness does not itself necessarily compromise quality of life. So I will stop there. I had a few other examples, but I think we can have some conversations about this. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Reuven, would you like to go next? Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, I'm very pleased to be here today. Uh, one of the, I guess, the series of questions we were asked to reflect on for today uh, were about sort of the role and responsibility of, in, of institutions in fostering public engagement in science, technology, and governance, um, how you know, the role uh, institutions might play in, in fostering participation and also in developing a kind of cosmopolitan um, ethics. Uh, there was a third question, which was about the barriers that scientists face. I'm not a scientist, so I don't feel qualified uh, to, to answer that question, but I want to sort of focus on those other two, cosmopolitan ethics and the role of public engagement in science and tech, the governance of science and technology. Um, and I think uh, to properly answer and address that question, we have to sort of take a half step back and ask ourselves, uh, why do we want public involvement in the governance of science and technology in the first place? Uh, or perhaps another way to think of this question is what is the appropriate role of public involvement in the governance of science and technology? 
Uh, and I think that one tempting answer might, might be something like this. Ethical questions are really hard. If we look around society, there's lots of disagreement about what we ought to do around a particular question. And uh, disagreement is rife. It's hard to know how to adjudicate between competing views. A natural solution might be that we live in a democratic society, and thus we ought to settle questions about morality, about which there's lots of disagreement, through democratic means. Uh, and one way to do this might be consulting the public. If we go and find out what public opinion is, this would be reasonable guidance about where we ought to draw limits and how we ought to proceed. Uh, so we might think that consulting the public is a way for scientists to find out where the ethical boundaries actually lie, because these boundaries are in fact determined by public opinion. Uh, and I want to suggest that we should resist that view, okay? as, as obvious as that, that view might seem. Um, and that's simply because public opinion is, a not, is not a reliable guide to right and wrong, um, and is in fact often mistaken. Uh, and I think we can see some clear examples of this, right? Slavery is wrong even in a society where it's popular. Uh, mis misogynistic policies that deny women access to education are wrong even in societies where such views have popular support. So popularity, public opinion, is not going to be a guide to what's right and wrong. Uh, okay, so now you might think, well, I'm going to thus conclude that uh, we shouldn't be consulting with the public, but that's not so. I think there are other reasons we can give for why consulting public opinion is, in fact, crucially important. Um, so the alternate view and the one that I think is correct, and I'm going to try and argue for briefly now, um, is that a a public consultation is important for figuring out how scientific and technological developments might impact other people and society more generally. And this is just because well, not just because, but it's a psychological fact, I think, that it's hard for individuals to imagine how a particular advancement or a particular technology might impact people that are very different from themselves. We're sort of limited in our own ability to imagine the consequences that might follow from technological developments, especially for those whose lives, values, and cultures are very different from our own. So without listening to the concerns of other people, we risk making the mistake that our own experience is representative of everyone's, and it isn't. Uh, and this might lead us to completely overlook matters of serious moral concern because they simply lie outside our scope of experience. Um, so yeah, it might be hard to anticipate how technological developments may impact others whose lives and priorities are different from our own. And I think we can think of some concrete examples, right? So we might think, so we can imagine technology that allows people to learn uh, the likely sex of an embryo at very early stages of development. An initial view of this kind of technology might be something like, well, you know, more information is an unmitigated good. This is, this is always a great thing to have. How could knowing more be bad? Um, but the existence of such technology might harm people who face uh, social or cultural pressure to create male children. Right? We might have people who... Uh, the existence of this technology allows for people to be pressured into unwanted abortions, for example, so they can try again for male offspring. Um, and in fact, you know, the question about sex-selective abortion has garnered much ethical attention and might not be something that's easy to foresee, depending on where your starting point is. Um, but through consulting with the public, when we start thinking about new technologies or uh, scientific developments, we might gain better insight into what the consequences might be. So I think uh, if you accept this, the, the second version of why consulting with the public is important, 
uh, this might change our view about what we ought to be doing and what strategies we should be taking when we are trying to consult with the public. Uh, so for one, it's not going to be a numbers game. It's not going to be about getting the most people into a room and taking a poll about what people think about a particular matter. Uh, what's going to be key is diversity. We want, we want to hear from people who are different from us so we can try and anticipate what consequences a development might, development might have. Um, and um, so I think with that in mind, we can start to look at what responsibilities institutions might have to make this happen. So for one, it's going to be very important to make uh, information about scientific and technolog technological developments accessible to a broad range of people. This means presenting information in a way that's not full of jargon, that's accessible. It's also going to mean allowing for diverse ways of engaging. Not everybody can come in the middle of the day to a lecture in a university hall. Uh, if we want to reach a, a diverse group of people, we need to find ways uh, to make it easy for people to participate. And there are some models of how to do this. Like, for instance, in the UK, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority often um, uh, sends out sort of requests for information or views from the public and allows people to write in what concerns they might have. And then this gets assessed when, when people are thinking about how to uh, govern a particular technological development. And I think these are um, uh, sort of positive, positive steps we can take. Um, the, the last thing I want to talk about is just the idea of cosmopolitan ethics. And I think there are a few ways we can think about uh, cosmopolitan ethics. Uh, one way I think is much uh, is uh, perfectly good, and one way is a bit problematic. When we talk about cosmopolitan ethics, uh, sometimes people think what we're talking about is giving equal importance to each individual's view about the substance of morality. Uh, and, I, and based on sort of what I said earlier, I think that's the wrong way to go because people can be mistaken about the substance of morality. This can be based on uh, factual claims that are incorrect or moral beliefs that are pernicious. I think the focus of cosmopolitan ethics has to be treating individuals with equal dignity and respect as persons. Um, and again, this is not something that's going to necessarily be achieved through just the practice of democracy or democratizing uh, values. It's going to involve trying to uh, attract a broad range of diverse voices and sitting down and doing some serious and difficult ethical thinking about how we ought to proceed. Um, and that second step, I think, is not something that can just be sort of done solely through, through the public. Um, and of course, how to do that is a difficult question, and we can talk about that later on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, ben, you're next. So when, yeah. so when, when uh, we, the organizers, were drafting the questions for this panel, I never imagined that I would have to answer them. Um, but this, this chair was supposed to be occupied by our, our beloved colleague, uh, John Evans, who had to be called away for a family emergency. So unfortunately, I'm having to fill in and respond to my own challenge. Um, and, you know, since the project of this panel is to ask to ask some questions to engender a conversation around this kind of, you know, nice sounding but but um, difficult to wrap your head around concept of cosmopolitan ethics. Um, what I want to do is is just offer a few thoughts, um, less about what it is and more about to respond to the question about the accounts that dominate, and I would add to that delimit the what are what is sort of inimical to the forms of 
um, engagement and deliberation that draw upon the the full richness of human moral imagination and experience and invite it in um, and engage it uh, uh, collectively with humility, um, which is what I take the project of cosmopolitan ethics to be. Um, so I'm going to take a page out of out of Matt Porteous's book and um, have four things, but I'm going to do them one better, and they're all going to start with the same letter. Um, so, so my first my first item is imperative. Um, so, I think one of the one of the um, the barriers to achieving the kind of um, to the, the the sort of to achieving a cosmopolitan ethics is the ways in which there maybe is a tendency, particularly in the kinds of conversations one has in the sorts of domains that we're, we're in, um, in confusing a kind of imperative to progress with an imperative to research. And I think that came up a bit on the earlier panel today. Um, the notion that, I mean, to put it, to overstate it and put it simply, um, that if, if you can do it, you should do it. That, you know, it's that research has a kind of, intrinsic virtue unless one can give reasons as to why um, it ought not proceed, as opposed to um, seeing the, the domain of science and technology as, as a, you know, as a zone of immense potential in which judgments are made about, about um, where one's energy and resources and so forth are put more productively versus less productively. Just to point to one example, um, the, the, question, the issue of the 14-day rule came up with respect to human embryo research culture. Um, and and uh, indeed, there is an emerging conversation around whether that limit is an appropriate limit. But I want to just point to the way that as it became possible to technically possible to um, culture human embryos up to and past that limit, um, the, the limit became much more flimsy, which is quite odd for a limit which was laid down in order to constrain research practice, right? So here are just a few quotes taken from places like Science and Nature. Um, you know, the, the, these technical developments raise the question of where to place the ethical limits on human embryo development, human embryo development in vitro. That's a statement by a very prominent developmental biologist. Um, these advances put human developmental biology on a collision course with the 14-day rule. The rule is no longer fit for purpose because of the technical capacity to, to cross it, and there is building pressure to extend or even abolish this rule. Uh, there is something in that construction of progress as the imperative to research um, that, that makes presumptive a kind of technological trajectory or a scientific and technological trajectory um, that is the product of human and social choices and commitments. Um, and whether those are good or bad commitments, of course, those are questions to be asked. And yet what I want to point to is the way that those questions tend to be constrained by the presumption that X development raises the problem. X development will push past you know, whatever limit one imposes. So closely related to that is my second I, which is inevitability. Um, and if one listens to the kind of discourse that happens around biotechnologies, you, you'll, you'll note how, um, uh, you know, the word inevitability does tend to come up here and there. Well, it's inevitable that. It's inevitable that such and such will happen. Now that this step has been taken, now that that technique has been developed, it's inevitable that it will be applied 
in such and such way. Just for example, um, in you know early 2015, when discussions around um, heritable genome editing were just sort of getting really getting going, uh, Nature Biotechnology did a kind of interview of a whole bunch of experts in the field, bioethicists, scientists, etc. And the first question was basically, do you think now that this technology is developed that it's inevitable that it will be applied to the human germline? After the you know, news from China of the genetically engineered babies emerged, you know, there were headlines that said, well, it was an inevitable result of the development of, it was inevitable that this was going to be applied. Sometimes the undertone was it was inevitable it was going to be applied in China. Um, Well, that that last point is actually quite important because the narrative of inevitability, once the technology exists, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle, the future is, you know, beyond our control, et cetera, et cetera, often is linked to a kind of geopolitics of governance. Well, we might restrain ourselves here, but someone somewhere else is going to do it. And therefore, what's the point of restraining ourselves? Maybe we should just do it, but do it better than they would do it. Because otherwise, you know, we are just taking ourselves out of the game because it's inevitable. So that this, this notion of inevitability um, has this delimiting role on the kinds of questions that can be asked about what should or shouldn't be done, the kinds of conversations that can be had about governance. Um, number three is, and here's where I really want to channel John Evans, is illegitimacy. So at the end of the third summit, during the final panel, the Q&A session of the final panel of the first international summit on gene editing in 2015, John stood up, went to the mic. He might not like it that I'm saying this, repeating this, but nevertheless. Uh, he, he got up and went to the mic, and he, and he observed, you know, I've been sitting here listening for three days, and the word religion hasn't been mentioned once. And yet... He's a sociologist of religion, of American religion. He says, for more than half of the country, the way, the way you know, more, more than 50% of Americans would think about this would be in some way or other related to religious perspectives. Where is it? Um, can I, can, Andy, can you pop that slide up for me? Um, so I just want to show one picture. This is from the cover of, um, since we're in California, um, this is... This is the cover of the Stanford Medical Alumni Association magazine, Stanford Medicine magazine, uh, something like September 2004, fall 2004, um, just at the time that Californians were voting on Proposition 71, which funded, which funded CIRM and so on and so forth. This is a sort of moment of high politics of the, of the stem cell battle. I, I don't know if you can make out the picture, but here you have, you know, a sort of diverse group of, of scientists on one side, then this lined up a, a, along the sort of battle lines with this army of Bible-thumping preacher clones. Um, and this was the representation of what was one of the major political and bioethical controversies of the moment in the United States. Okay, what did this do? Well, this constructed an, a, a sort of picture of basically illegitimate politics and the ways in which those illegitimate politics ran afoul of science. And I would say that, you know, I mean, CIRM has came into being as a result of that initiative. It has done many things. One of the most durable consequences, one of the most durable outcomes of that moment is that, in a sense, by constructing the public problem in these terms, we got a public problem that looked like this. 
So the ways in which legitimacy or illegitimacy of what, even what questions one can ask, of participation in the discussion, of what the prerequisites are, what one needs to know, what, you know, views one needs to check, what vocabulary, moral vocabulary one needs to employ, etc. What the sort of rules of debate, the terms of debate um, that are insisted upon in you know, simple images like this, simple representations like this, are actually where a lot of the action is, right? It's not about getting to the point of the starting line. I mean, this is the re- result. This is this. So, so thinking about the ways in which the legitimacy or illegitimacy of deliberation and of its terms are constructed seems to me to be an absolutely essential place um, for to attend to if in the name of um, seeking after a more humble and more open and more inclusive and, and richer um, uh, dialogue. Okay, the last one, and then I'll quit, is internationalism. Or I'm cheating a little on this one because I want to I put a different letter word in front of it, and that is a kind of false internationalism. The way in which um, the international gets invoked often, the international summits, the International Commission on Germline, the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the International This, the International That. Jacob made this comment earlier, the ways in which different societies come at problems differently with different cultural traditions, different legal traditions, different, um, and those are rich and important traditions. And that if one elevates oneself to the position of the international and speaks for the international, um, there is a an appropriation of sorts that's potentially taking place there. And I think that the thing to attend to in, in that context are the ways in which, which a presumptive universalism of scientific expertise, um, a presumption, sort of, presumptive sort of deterritoriality of scientific expertise, it floats above place, right? It occupies a different sphere, gets then equated with a kind of a presumptive internationalism and displaces a world which is much more heterogeneous, much more complex, and much more full of experience, imagination, and knowledge um, than tends to be acknowledged by a 15-member commission that slaps the label international on itself but is mostly populated by molecular biologists trained at U.S. institutions. All right. Thank you, Ben. I think we heard three really fascinating accounts of, um, and critiques of cosmopolitan ethics. Um, you know, I'll start off with a question. I, I think as many scientists that I've heard from in my field think of and characterize ethics as being punitive in some ways. There's a set of checkboxes. It's mostly to satisfy. And if you don't check, then, you know, you might get in trouble. Um, and in some cases, serious trouble. Um, I, I wonder if cosmopolitan ethics could be uh, generative and... I think we heard stories of having diversity uh, and not just polling, Um, hearing from different disciplines, uh, scholars, like uh, Rosemary pointed out towards the end, and then, you know, international, just to pick up on your last point. So maybe you could reflect, each of you, on how you see an opportunity here for this type of ethics, a different kind, perhaps, to be... um, attending to some of the questions, the hard questions that we heard about this morning. I think I suggested that um, we could work toward uh, new kinds of knowledge, which is to say new kinds of stories. Um, Medical science um, 
promotes and prefers a particular kind of knowledge. And that knowledge is uh, not usually narrative knowledge. It's not usually stories about human beings and their lives lived. And um, I think putting forward those kinds of human stories to change the story uh, is an important thing to try to do. And this, of course, is what the humanities and the arts does in general, and culture does in general. But um, narrative knowledge um, is closer to the human experience of actually lived lives. And so to increase the amount of narrative knowledge, in other words, the stories of lives lived, and to figure out a way to do that, um, I think is really an important counter to the predominance of a certain kind of what I call counting and measuring knowledge that is uh, the kind of knowledge that um, medicine and science tends to privilege. So that's one answer. Uh, yeah, so I think if we take seriously the idea that we ought to treat everybody with sort of equal dignity and respect, uh, I think that could be generative in, in the sense that it'll help set, I think, it, you know, interesting uh, project goals and help us think about creative ways we might be able to use technology or developments that arose just out of curiosity. And I think we've seen some examples of this. So I think, you know, uh, uh, the scientific community's response to the COVID epidemic was amazing in the way that there was an incredible amount of collaboration. And that's opened up a pathway to develop vaccines, hopefully, for communities that have been traditionally underserved by vaccine development. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, if, so, so to move away from this checkbox check ethics, right, as my research complying with everything it ought to, and to think, how can this research be used if I'm really going to try to do good in the world? Uh, it can open up other opportunities uh, where, where uh, I think science and technology can stand to really benefit humanity. So we had a d little bit of discussion in the last panel about public fear. Um, but it, I was thinking as I was listening to that discussion that the sort of corollary to that is public hope, right? And while there is a very great wariness of public fear within sort of the domains, basic domains of scientific practice, your research, your funding might get shut down, they might, whatever. Um, there is an enormous openness and encouragement of public hope, right? Um, and yet... And, and that, I think, is very important and is very valuable so long as it's not instrumentalized in the following sense. You know, science and technology are products of enlightenment. I mean, they are what enlightened societies... They are, they are part of what enlightened societies do as expressions of enlightenment and of progress. Um, and yet they are embedded in, they should be embedded in, and thus subsidiary to the collectively envisioned and articulated ideas of the good that should animate them. They ideally should be expressions of them. Um, and insofar as, I mean, the comments about sickle cell earlier and the, and the sort of hope that one can have because of the work that people like Matt are doing, that one should not think about that merely in the sort of instrumental terms. It's great that there's a Matt because he can produce products that will be beneficial for people, but rather in the human terms that there is an undertaking here, which is undertaken in the name of, of, 
you know, responding to human suffering and bettering human lives. Um, but what it means to respond to suffering and what it means to better lives and what forms of suffering are, do not warrant a response um, and what, what sorts of lives ought not be changed, um, what are the interventions in lives that are, that are beneficial and good and what aren't? I mean, these are questions that belong to a collective. And so it seems to me that the idea of a cosmopolitan ethics that invites... Um, that begins with the recognition that valuing life is the first step and then what that means for any given domain of practice is the second one instead of the other way around is an enormously hopeful and aspirational orientation. Um, and that, you know, one of the challenges in this domain is for this domain to get outside of itself and recognize, I mean, I think as those comments suggested, it begins with people and it begins with lives lived, as Rosemary was suggesting. Um, and, and it only comes into the domains of, of you know, the extraordinary power of science and technology uh, in response to that, or it should. Very interesting. Um, I, I'm, maybe I'll, I'll take this in a direction and build off of this fear, I think, that Matt pointed out earlier about a, a tech bro in Silicon Valley um, maybe using some of these um, human embryos or these types of bioengineering techniques to make a personalized product. But, um, and, and let's say there's a cosmopolitan ethics or some sort of community out there that says, um, you know, the right to do that is, is not absolute, that there should be some limits to that type of processing of and manipulation of human life um i guess I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of where you see power and conflict um in these types of situations and uh how it intersects with these I, these ideas of cosmopolitan ethics that we just just heard about so we, we let's let's focus in on that example in let's say, in California, since we're here. Um, and that was proposed, let's say, you know, next week. What, what do you think a um, robust uh, discussion or process of deliberating on that case would be? Do I have to take that? <laughs> You're the Californian, aren't you? <laughs> it's true. I'm a former, I'm a recovering Californian. Um, uh, I, I don't honestly, Chris, have a very good prescriptive answer to that question, and it seems to me that once we drop down into the zone of of identifying the procedures, we've also ended up in that zone of delimitation that I think Matt was partly pointing to with his first item of sort of soft governance, which was delimited governance, what the Biosafety Committee says, what the IRB says, and and uh, so forth. But um, but. It does seem to me that this that a starting point that that wants to draw a distinction between, well, science and politics, and for that matter, ethics and politics, that wants to talk about politicization in in as though it's a as though it's a pollution, as opposed to um, that mode of human coexistence through which we seek after ways of being together, which itself is an expression of being human. Um, I think that that we're sort of already off on the wrong foot. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I even slightly disagree with the suggestion that the purpose of 
the reason for a diversity of perspectives is that you arrive at better answers as though that's a sort of epistemic achievement, like more knowledge means more. But rather, that may be the case, but, but, that, um, but that the uh, conditions of possibility for having a moral community are that the or are that the community recognizes itself as a moral community and takes itself seriously in those terms, which means taking seriously those those moral perspectives that are present in one's community, even if one really rejects those particular perspectives. And so, I mean, that, that's a... I, I, it's bizarre that... I find it easier to get to that place in my undergraduate seminar than in most of the sort of rarefied zones of bioethics and bioscience governance um, where that's supposed to be what the thing is all about. Um, I'm finding myself drawn toward a metaphor um, of... um, you know, the, it's a familiar metaphor that the ship is going through the ocean and it's very hard to turn the ship around once it's headed in a certain direction. And I'm thinking about uh, conversations that we've had about how the pandemic uh, created a border which changed the way we had to think about almost everything and how difficult it is to conceptualize going back before the pandemic to the place where we were when we didn't know what a pandemic was going to do and that it was going to come uh, to us. And I wanted to bring up the idea of, uh, or the the case study, uh, if you will, of uh, Down syndrome. So Down syndrome uh, was the first genetic condition that was tested for widely starting in the mid-1960s. And in the mid-1960s, life prospects and quality of life for people born with Down syndrome was very, very low, uh, in part because the recommendation was generally that people born with Down syndrome should be institutionalized, and also because that there wasn't a very... um, good development of the kinds of treatments uh, that uh, could address some of the medical problems that people born with Down syndrome had. And so the genetic test was introduced into the reproductive environment uh, for Down syndrome, and it has stayed in place, not as a requirement, although some places in a requirement, but as a kind of... um, accepted practice since the mid-1960s. And in fact, the prospects for a good life and flourishing for people born into rich countries um, with Down syndrome now is very, very different uh, than it was in the 1960s. And yet we still persist in the same sense of uh, the practice uh, of testing and termination on the basis of um, a risk for Down syndrome, so that worldwide um, the elimination of people with Down syndrome um, is between 80 and 95 percent. 
recently, um, some of the Nordic countries had announced that they had eliminated the disease of Down syndrome. And of course, the way they're doing that is by eliminating people who have this condition, as if the disease and the condition, I mean, as if the person and the condition are not, are, are separable in some way. And so this is just one example of some of the assumptions and the practices that are in place that go unexamined because they are part of the general protocol and part of the general narrative that we have. Nonetheless, of course, what I don't want to suggest is that uh, reproductive liberty uh, or reproductive autonomy is not a really important uh, right uh, in liberal democracies. Everyone should have uh, the right to determine the kind of family that they want to have. That's really very clear. So what we have here is the story that I just told about Down syndrome and the story of the importance of autonomy, especially autonomy in creating families and lives. And these come into conflict all the time in practice and in public conversations. And so it's very complicated and it goes way beyond simple recommendations or positions about... Um, what ought to be legal and what ought to be illegal, uh, what ought to be uh, understood as ethical and what under, ought to be understood as, as unethical. And I've just given one example of how complicated it is and why it's so important for us to have multiple voices and public conversations um, about such questions that involve, in the broadest sense, cosmopolitan ethics. Thank you, Rosemary. I think that's a, a fantastic story to to share on on a pretty pointed question. Um, let's let's open it up. I I think are there some mics around? Um, I would welcome questions from the, the audience um, on any of the uh, comments we heard earlier today. Um, and I guess while we're waiting for mics, um, I'll ask. You know, maybe, maybe I'll pick up on this question of um, soft versus hard uh, decisions and uh, or our actual limits, right, that we uh, touched upon in panel one and how um, these stories that may not have simple answers, uh, as you just pointed out, um, or... or or, or operate in a very complex uh, culture, how can we still have and adhere to limits like the 14-day rule um, that really do provide hard guideposts um, that allow us to do some of the science that and, and is emancipatory for the types of questions that a particular field of research wants to do, like in embryo research. So the, can, I, can I just answer that quickly by not answering it myself, but quoting the Warnock report, um, which, which uh, I mean, I think the 14-day limit is a very interesting thing. We could spend all day talking about it, in part because it was a, 
a soft determination of a hard limit. Like the rationale was not 14 days is obviously the right place, at least not in the British version of that determination. It's com more complicated over here. Um, but rather that a, but that a determination was needed. So this is from the Warnock report. The establishing a limit is, quote, witness to the existence of a moral order of our society. There must be some barriers that are not to be crossed, some limits fixed beyond which people must not be allowed to go. The very existence of morality depends upon it. I mean, I think that's quite a provocative and interesting statement um, since it's a statement about the moral order and not a statement about embryos, right? It's a statement about limits that recognizes that limits are not merely about the, th the thing that they limit, whether it's the biological entity or the, or the um, scientific practice around it, but is a commitment to, to, to the, the recognition of moral ambiguity um, and thus of a kind of ethical imperative to, to draw a line for the sake of having a line, for the sake of being able to say, this is a responsible and civilized society that won't go just anywhere and do just anything. Would you like to add? Um, yeah, I, I, so I'm going to disagree. I think that it's a, a mischaracterization to say that these lines are drawn just as a means to establish that it's a society that um, takes questions of morality seriously. So, you know, we're just going to draw a line somewhere. Um, I think many ethical questions... Uh, admit of vagueness, uh, and uh, you know there are we have a category of certain cases uh, on either side of a very vague boundary, um, and there's a temptation sometimes to say, well, because there are these indeterminate cases, uh, it's you know, and, and so we have to draw boundaries somewhere. Uh, our boundaries necessarily unprincipled, and thus it's arbitrary and sort of meaningless and it's just a, a matter of democratic discourse or something like that. And I think that's false. And I think we, we can think of some examples. So uh, one that I talk about uh, often in, in, in my undergraduate class on, bi on uh, bioethics is age of consent, right? Uh, what, whatever that age of consent might be, where you are, 18, 21, ba based on various things. Uh, the United States is kind of bizarre in that you can join the military before you can have a beer, but that's a question for another day. Uh, Everybody will admit that nothing magically happens on your 18th birthday. It's not like the day before you're 18, you're incompetent, uh, and the day you turn 18, you're not. Uh, what we do recognize is a gradation of competency, uh, and for certain issues in which it's you know, not feasible to make very precise determinations, we have to pick some spot in the zone of vagueness and draw that as our line, as a way of protecting ourselves from doing things that are morally impermissible. But that doesn't mean that there are, aren't clear cases, but because there's gradation of competency, it doesn't mean that there aren't clear cases where somebody's incompetent and clear cases where somebody is competent. We're just stuck with this intractable problem of you know, fine-grained precision. Uh, and I think that we see that all the time, and I think that we should resist the temptation to think that these are just arbitrary or there is no uh, correct answer. Uh, so you know, in my statement I made earlier, I was defending a version of, of, uh, of moral realism, right? That there are, are true, true and false things in morality, just like there are true and false facts about the world. Um, and I think that if you, and I, I think even if you hold a view like that, you can admit, and you, we should be humble and admit that we can make mistakes. 
and we can draw the line in the wrong place. So these lines always have to be re revisable. And when we set the line, we have to set the line also knowing that we may have been mistaken, or maybe we're doing the best job we can at the time. Um, and, and once we gain more knowledge, gain more insight, both moral insight and insight about facts about the world, uh, we can revise that position. Um, so that, and I think that we can apply that kind of thinking to something like the 14-day the, the rule. Yeah, I have um, a comment to make, Reuven, on what you said and possibly a question to push in that direction. But I also have a question for Rosemary. Um, so uh, on your point, Reuven, um, I actually had the benefit of talking to Mary Warnock about the Warnock report. Sorry to pull rank in a sense or pull age or whatever. And she did indeed confirm that uh, when she took on the chairmanship of that, or the chair of that committee, the committee well understood that the British government needed a line, any line, uh, and that that was the, the purpose of what, and she said to me with a twinkle in her eye that it was good that there were these dissenting voices who were Catholics because the Catholics had been included in the deliberation and of course it was known that they were going to dissent but the very fact of there being a dissent added more legitimacy mm -hmm. to the conclusion of the report because it showed that there had been something like deliberation. But the point about right and wrong, I mean, aren't you conflating two different levels of rightness and wrongness when you say that? I mean, as if there is an epistemically correct place that the 14 days is correct biologically or according to some other fact of nature, when in fact there is a different kind of rightness, which is that the line was arrived at in accordance to what the British government and public agreed was an appropriate form of deliberation, which wasn't just the committee report, it was the subsequent legislative deliberations and the eventual enactment of an act of parliament that ratified the 14 days and set up the HFEA that you were talking about, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. So it was not that a biologically correct 14 days at the time, because we didn't know enough, now becomes a biologically incorrect 14 days because now we can keep the embryo alive for longer and the black box that Jacob was talking about no longer needs to stay closed at 14 days but can extend subtly to 28 days or whatever. I mean, that leaves the judgment of rightness entirely in the hands of a biologically determined correctness of up to what time is it right to intervene in early embryological development with scientific means. But there was this added other sense of rightness, namely that the British public by and large went along with the view that yes, it makes common sense that there should be a line and the appearance of the primitive streak and the specialization of the frontal and the dorsal sides of the embryo, that these made sense as good biological markers. For a change to happen, there would have to be a further agreement of the same sort that, yes, now that we want to, that we can do certain things that science didn't allow us to do before, the sort of combined rightness of the mm -hmm. right deliberation and the right biology may or may not lead to a different set of things. But surely not just that we were wrong about the 14 days epistemically and now are right epistemically. It was always a hybrid. So I don't know what you would make of that 
kind of argument. But the thing I wanted to ask Rosemary was that implicit in what you were suggesting is that one may want to question even the prime mandates of public health and and medicine about the do no harm, because it raises questions about from whose standpoint are you judging the harm doing, and that implicit in your Down syndrome story with the... I mean, actually, it raises somewhat the same questions as I was asking before, because does a Nordic country have the right to declare that Down syndrome is a disease and therefore ought to be eradicable without taking into into account the subjective experience of the parents and children who are suffering from this condition and their self-understanding of what that particular mode of suffering, if suffering it is, is worth in a society. So in in highly socialized forms of government where the state and the public till are paying for the care of people, you could see that there might be an exogenous and quite cost-benefit-oriented calculation that we do not want to care for these people because they cost extra money, but that may not be sufficient to override the sense of families with Downs in their progeny that actually it is a total moral good for that family unit or for that society to tolerate a certain kind of variation. I mean, so our questions might be, are there disease conditions where we would not want autonomy about deciding, yes, we want to live with this condition, and how do we arrive at those absolute positions, that this is an absolute bad for everybody or sufficiently universal, that eradication is the answer, and not living with, which might be more consistent with a cosmopolitan ethics approach to the very idea of suffering. You're asking exactly the right question, of course. Um, I don't know what kinds of deliberations went into the decisions and the announcement on the part of these Nordic countries uh, that they had eliminated uh, Down syndrome as a disease. Um, But, of course, these are countries that have um, social medicine and social support, so economic considerations may certainly have been uh, brought to bear in uh, the uh, decisions about how to characterize Down syndrome as a disease rather than a uh, human variation. Uh, That said, I think we have some there are really important questions uh, of fairness uh, about resource distribution. Uh, For example, um, it's often argued that the money that could be, that is put forward uh, to support research, uh, for example, to eliminate certain kinds of diseases might be better spent uh, creating a uh, a better social safety net for people who have these conditions um, and to invest that money in making better lives uh, for, um, for people with these conditions. So those are really important questions. I think there's another example that uh, might be brought forward that's really interesting we haven't talked about, and that is the practice of euthanasia 
that is so very widespread in uh, Belgium and the Netherlands and Switzerland and that is uh, soundly rejected in the UK and in Germany and uh, more or less in the United States even though um, there are increasing numbers of, of, um, of states that permit euthanasia, which we don't ever call it euthanasia here in the United States. We call it things like uh, physician-assisted suicide or uh, various uh, other language but um, it's never called, it's called suicide rather than uh, euthanasia. But um, what's rather remarkable is even though, as I said, there are more states that are making what we call assisted suicide legal, it has not been taken up at all in the way that it has been taken up in um, the Netherlands and Belgium and Switzerland. And it's very interesting to think about the framework of why that's why that happens um, in terms of um, ethics um, and morality and public conversation. And we don't have to analyze that, but it's just another really good example of how uh, different social structures and different, um, I think, uh, histories of societies uh, shape the kinds of ethics, uh, the kinds of morality that, um, that we have that govern um, scientific medicine and its practices and regulations. Do you want to add on? Yeah, I will, I'd like to res just respond to the comments about uh, my, my take on, on uh, the 14-day rule. So I, I think you, th there was some rationale, I think, behind the 14-day rule. And I know that the idea of individuation was taken very seriously. At what point can we be certain that we have an individual and not something that might subdivide or turn into twins or things? And that was part of the motivation. And so there was an empirical basis for why, at a certain point, we have something identifiable as an individual. Um, and of course, those are questions that we could be right or, or wrong about, and our decisions can change. And so I think you know, there, there is, uh, now of course, I never had the opportunity to speak to uh, uh, the original authors of the report or the committees involved. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, from what I've read about it, there was rationale and justification, and we can assess the correctness of the, at least some of the empirical claims that underlie where this line was drawn, um, and we can re reconsider them. Uh, and we ought to reconsider them in, in the face of new evidence. The question about two kinds of right. So we can arrive at a position that is politically correct in the sense that it has followed the appropriate political procedures um, such that it's consistent with the Constitution and other laws governing the passage of, of regulation. Um, and that's true. That's a very separate question from whether the decision is, in fact, morally correct. And of course, there's a separate question about how we ought to respond when those, when those decisions are or are not morally correct. In some instances, we do think that people should just resist uh, politically correct but immoral decisions. So for example, a state can, through completely uh, uh, politically correct means, uh, instigate a war against another country and draft people to fight in that war. And we might think that... Uh, people in those circumstances ought to resist what is in fact uh, demanded of them by a politically, completely politically correct decision. So in a certain sense, yes, there are two kinds of right. 
what, I'm, what I was concerned about with is the moral boundary. And of course, there's a separate question of how we ought to behave when the moral boundary um, and, the, uh, and the political rule, the, politically, the, the rule that was determined by the correct political process are in tension with each other. And that's, that's a complicated question. It's going to vary case by case. I think we all, in a certain sense, uh, end up supporting rules that we think are immoral in some sense, right? I mean, I think that the U.S.'s mass incarceration system is terribly morally problematic. Uh, and when I pay tax, uh, my money goes to support that. So should I be not paying taxes? Uh, these are complicated and difficult questions. Um, but I, I guess I see there, there is a sense in which we might be talking about right, right in, in, in two separate ways when we're engaging this debate. Yeah, I just want to clarify that yeah. I don't buy exactly what you're saying about mm -hmm. politically correct. Uh -huh. Uh, not that that term isn't charged yeah. enough by itself. Sorry, that was a poor choice of, of anyway, terms. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but this is not a point about mm. conforming to preordained political process. I mean, in fact, mm. the Warnock Committee was operating itself in a gray zone and did not mm. know what the process would end up being. Mm -hmm. And the process went through several iterations mm -hmm. because of the controversial character of the proceedings. So it's mm -hmm. not that there was a process laid out in advance. The correctness, in a way, was an after-the-fact judgment that what emerged was something that people were prepared to live with, mm -hmm. prepared to live with because they felt it had been deliberated in a way that they culturally understood to be adequate for the purposes. Mm -hmm. And that is a different form, form of correctness from obeying rules. Mm -hmm. I think it goes back to what Rosemary was saying about why certain cultures might approve of something that's physician-assisted, mm -hmm. premature dying, uh, mm -hmm. and other cultures might not. But, mm -hmm. but that, it, it's not a matter of rule book following correctness. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a matter of political judgment that this was mm -hmm. an adequate deliberative process. Uh, should we go to the next question here? Hi, and, and um, this has been a fascinating day for me because this isn't the way I usually think. and <laughs> <laughs> The terminologies you're using and the way you're, you're thinking about things are just, you know, kind of, you know, massaging my brain a little bit or maybe beating it up a little bit. But I just wanted to, you know, kind of give a different perspective, maybe, in terms of, of these discussions. So, you know, I'm coming from the side as a, a practicing surgeon physician and then now a funding agency that seeks to advance science. And it was, as per that, I'd love to hear the, the whole genesis of that, that cartoon and the interpretation, but uh, for good or bad, and I think mainly good, um, that there was a formation of an agency that advanced scientific innovation that went, you know, um, through a process of public discourse and debate, but then ended up with... Um, a decision to fund this this um, effort in order to advance human health. Um, so fundamentally, as as um, the head of an agency now, you know, uh, migrating my role from uh, with treating patients directly to instituting, executing on this uh, desire of the public to pursue this, our our mission is driving everything we do, and the the mission is to deliver transformative. Uh, therapies to patients with the presumption that the science will enable us to do good and to solve human the human um, human diseases untreatable conditions um, and then so when we discuss things 
upstream from that in terms of the, the, the steps in getting there from the discovery to the translation to the clinical trials to the treatments. Along the way, there are going to be um, checks and balances according to the ethics committees, you know, the FDA, um, the standard societies, and all that, that we should continue to have this. And what I'm hearing I, I think is really important. There is no right answer, right? But it's a, a matter of making sure that we hear a diversity of perspectives and thought and fair representation. <laughs> so here's, here's the challenge is, when is that enough? 12-member um, committee is, may not be enough. You know, what, what is the most effective way to, ha to gain that input? And what is feasible? And how do we not um, inhibit progress by trying to have the right discussions? Um, I think narratives are incredibly important. Where do they, where do they fit in to the whole um, process of, of making sure that, um, you know, the right, the, the right evaluation of potential um, um, treatments is done in a, that can be measurable and reproducible and, 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 and um, trackable to make sure there's no harm, right? So I, I'm raising more questions, but then, you know, so that's why I just, uh, you know, I think it's so important to have these discussions, but then I always kind of say, okay, so how can we do things better so that these types of, you know, considerations are brought to bear in terms of there is no perfect. So the Warnock, the Warnock discussion is really interesting because it's, it's a very hot topic, obviously, in the scientific community as well as, as all in, in different um, circles. But the fact that there was one, it, you know, through whatever process it went through, was a signal to continue, right? Was a signal, yes, with these limits, because we've had this discussion, keep going forward. And I would love to, as a community, figure out, can we arrive at what is the big picture? What do we agree is the right thing to go toward? So that along the way, we can evaluate, is it time to reconsider? Have things changed? And should we stop it altogether, right? And so that's from a big picture, right? Obviously, from the role that I play, it'll be continue to uh, drive responsible, ethically, you know, and medical responsible um, research forward. But nevertheless, as, a, as I, I think that your points and all of the things that I'm learning today, I'm, I'm, I feel so much more informed. It's so important, and I, I, I wanted to just acknowledge that and also, also get some practical um, things uh, things that I can bring back to to my um, stakeholders to say, you know, maybe we should um, incorporate that in, in our processes as well. Thank you. I mean, what's, what's remarkable, I think, given the last few comments, is that this idea of cosmopolitan ethics, of course, lives in public institutions, but also in, um, you know, newly formed committees like the Warnock Report, at least at that time new, um, in civil society, Internationally, you know, it, these pop up in, in um, really maybe potentially initially disparate domains such as life and death or um, disease and healthy, um, but they could be linked uh, to inform, you know, all of these different difficult questions. Um, any comments? I mean, I, we haven't really touched too much about institutions, I think. Um, or, or focused in on that as a site and a locus of uh, producing and reimagining cosmopolitan ethics, that that could be a, 
maybe there's there's some reflection there on whether that's that's a productive site um, or one of the best sites to to start to constitute this um, ideals and ideas that we have about cosmopolitan ethics. I have a question before you. <coughs> it'll fit in with what. You're okay, doing. great. Go ahead. And that is, so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking. Um, again, different, different point of view, but um, we sit in rooms and we have very brilliant people who make decisions about what's ethical and what's right and what should be done, um, and we come up with very well-meaning things like guidelines or reports, which then, when it comes to health, get turned into um, sometimes legislation, sometimes other types of things, which are actually uh, affect people's lives. And there doesn't seem to be anything in, proce- in, the, in the process to think about what that means at the point of service or the point of care. And what I'm thinking about now was the report on uh, the misuse of opioids. And that was done from a parent's heart. Um, the director of the CDC's son had a, had a problem. He looked at it. He had a lot of money. He had friends' influence. And they wrote this report. And this report went out in the world. And under the guise of cosmopolitan ethics, it was, we have to do something about that. And we need to put some things in place. And what we've got in place now is where Patients are going to the hospital and really needing pain care, and the 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 very people they have to go to for care are now having to make the decision about whether or not the person A is really sick or not, or B is it better to let the person suffer with pain uh, than be a drug addict. And the other thing is, if I really want to treat their pain and I don't follow along with these guidelines, then I could lose my job. So again, here, clearly we can all agree, pill mills were no good. People were dying. People are still dying. We need to do something. But in our discussions about ethics and what needs to happen, again, when it goes wrong or we have enough uh, evidence to say that heading this way was not right, that isn't clearly the thing to do. Do we have a mechanism, right, for correction or to revisit? And I think surely with as fast as uh, cell and gene therapy is going, we need to be thinking about that. Unlike other times when things were going a bit slowly, we might have had more time to turn things around. But we, I think we really need to be aware of that. And so I'll let you... Please, in your groups and you know your brilliance, let's discuss that. <laughs> uh, can I say a few sure. things? I think in response to both both questions. Um, I think um, what kind of goes along with with humility about fall- and fallibility about decision making is that mechanisms of, re- of revisability have to be built into the policies we put forward. Policy is always blunt. It's always hard. Uh, for a particular policy to take in all the details of a particular situation. Uh, and there's always going to be costs where 
whenever we have a kind of blanket policy about anything, that uh, we're going to err in some cases on one side and in other cases on the other. Um, so I think while in the process of crafting guidelines and policies, uh, we should take on board the fact that these policies are not going to stand for all eternity. Uh, we likely are going to have to make amendments, and uh, we ought to reconsider the position. Um, and I think one way to do this is formal sort of sunset clauses on regulation, where you know there's a, there's a status quo bias. Once there's a rule, uh, it's much harder to change the rule than it is you know uh, than it would have been to amend it at, at at the outset. And so I think one way to deal with that is just yeah sunset clauses force people to reconsider the decision at a certain point in time. Um, and I think I think that's sort of a practical suggestion that could be more widely employed. Um, to help us deal with some of these problems. Yeah. Uh, well, just a quick response to that. I would worry that it's sunset clauses are a pretty blunt instrument to deal with a blunt <laughs> instrument. Um, so, th- so that makes me worried. <laughs> but Fair enough. but let me let me say. I mean, I think that this point about about um, about correction is a is a crucial point. Mechanisms for correction. To that, I would add mechanisms for learning, which are you know tightly coupled. Um, and maybe expand it to or qualify it as at the most sort of expansive level mechanisms of democratic correction. Um, uh, so, you know, Maria, in a sense, your, your question, as I take it, is, is there sort of what's enough? You know, do you need a committee of 14 or of 40 or 400 or 4,000 or 400,000? Or when, you know, when is it 4 million, 40 million? Yeah, we can keep going. Um, you know, sort of when is enough enough enough? I think that, you know, this is a very simple-minded comment, but there's a, there's a very important distinction between, between delegated governance and appropriated governance. And the, and the committee of 14 that, in effect, appoints itself and declares itself the right committee by virtue of its expertise or whatever imagination of representation it's operating with is appropriated governance, not delegated governance. But there are many things for which, you know, in late modern societies we say, let's not all deal let's not all try to solve this problem together. Let's give it to the, you know, the department that monitors water quality or to the FDA or to the whatever, um, you know, delegated governance, uh, where there are terms of authorization and there are hopefully mechanisms of correction and what we call accountability, which should be more fulsomely understood than it tends to be, um, that invite you know, forms of scrutiny and ongoing deliberation and entail a kind of provisionality that, that uh, you know, doesn't have a built-in blunt instrument of revisability. But, you know, I mean, even our sacred constitution is revisable in principle. It's just not so easy to do. Mm-hmm. But that's part of the, you know, it's a, it's a design feature. Anyway, I, I think that if one starts with that question, what is the delegation upon which this structure of governance is built? And is it a good one? Is it a robust one? Uh, what are the politics of authorization? You know, we might actually look at these, at, at powerful institutions differently, and also at the ways those institutions justify their own power. Uh, and I think especially in the domain of biomedicine, where a lot of the justification is self-justification, we know the disease. We know the we you know we know you don't. Um, is a, I mean, in, to be um, 
you know, to maybe contend with something a little bit uncomfortable since you're from CIRM, sorry. Um, you know, in the, in the politics of, CIRM has done and continues to do many really excellent things. Um, uh, and yet, if one looks back at the moment of its creation and authorization, they relied very heavily on the political voices of people affected by very serious diseases where the coalition was formed around the promise that if this funding comes through in five years, you'll be cured. Now, as it was said repeatedly, and, you know, and I have a whole file full of quotes from people who were involved in this who say, well, you know, if this doesn't happen, you know, there's going to be hell to pay. But th these are people who are, in effect, forgotten people when they cease to be useful. And there was no hell to pay because the, they lost their soapboxes five years afterwards when the, when the um, goods weren't delivered. And, I mean, that is not, it seems to me, a robust promise a pro upon which to build authorization and delegation for what are otherwise very virtuous undertakings. And it is the risk the temptation of, of availing oneself of that easy authorization that makes, you know, that taints the enterprise and, and indeed produces and, and solidifies things like this, which to me are, are corrosive to democracy. And, you know, I mean, we're seeing in the last few years what, what the corrosion to democracy that we have affected over the last few decades is is producing for us, and it's and it's a pretty disturbing thing. Well, um, I think we have time for very brief closing comments. Um, would you like to start, Rosemary? Thirty seconds or so. Um, I just want to emphasize something that I think underlies uh, many of the conversations that we've had here today, and that is to use the terms from bioethics, um, harm and benefit. It's very difficult to uh, adjudicate and to disentangle harms and benefits and to treat them as if they are two separate things, when in fact almost every action or every human circumstance has both a harm and a benefit that are entangled in one another. And this is what makes it so very difficult for us to uh, move forward with policies, uh, practices, and regulations that do, in fact, support something like the admirable goal of cosmopolitan ethics. Yeah, I guess uh, what I'd like to emphasize uh, from my point of view is just the importance of, uh, you know, if we're going to take this view of cosmopolitan ethics, that we... Uh, treat everybody with the respect they deserve, and that means paying attention to to how different kinds of technologies and developments might affect people in desperate ways. And I think that's a really good reason for why we should be looking for breadth when we're doing public consultation, um, try and cast the net wide, and not really focus on just a numbers game, but are we actually representing the, the diversity of kinds of lives when we're, when we're crafting policy? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just say that I think this panel and the concept of the center of this panel is an aspiration. Um, its, its central aspiration is that we, as we conceive it, um, has less of a them than it might have otherwise. And, and uh, that, you know, this conversation has very much been in that spirit. So thanks a lot. Let's thank our panel once again.